Welcome, everybody, to What's in Store, the show where we discuss hot topics at the cross-section of retail and real estate. I'm Carly Iacono, Senior Vice President at CBRE, and I'm joined by Chris Ressa, the COO of DLC. Welcome, Chris. Great to see you. How's everything? Good. Happy summer. Happy summer. It is officially the day after Memorial Day that we are filming this, so it is legit summer. I hope you got some time to celebrate last weekend. I did. I was down at the beach. Nice. I was in the Hamptons. Can't complain. It was gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous. Gorgeous weekend. Yeah, for sure. So we are talking about our top five takeaways from ICSC Las Vegas, which was just a few days ago. It has been an insanely busy seven days, to put it mildly. For those of you that didn't make it to ICSC or maybe have never attended, this is the retail industry's premier global event. It happens once a year in Las Vegas. Chris and I both had jam-packed meeting schedules and we had very different conversations at the show based on our respective business lines. So we're excited to come together today to tell you kind of what those conversations focused on and what the main themes were that we heard this year. Chris, overall, how was the energy at the show? It was super positive. I, you know, maybe cautiously optimistic, but it was, you know, given some of the earnings reports when, you know, going into the show, I had suspected that maybe there would be some negativity as it relates to the fundamental real estate at the ground. It was bullish, positive, and then obviously as it related to the capital markets, you know, those are disrupted right now and a little bit more volatile. And so it was a lot of uncertainty around that. Very true. There were, I heard estimates anywhere from 25,000 to 40,000 people in attendance. I don't know. I'm sure ICSE can comment on the video and tell us exactly how many people were there, but it was buzzing. Definitely felt very, very busy. It was super, super busy. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's jump in. So in no particular order, here were our top five takeaways. Number one, labor is challenging, but not in the ways that you may think. So Chris, why don't you kick this off for us with your thoughts on the labor market as it pertains to retail? Yeah, I, I, I think when people think of the labor challenge, they're thinking about, and it relates to retail, restaurants not able to get wait staff, and they're thinking about retailers not able to get people on the floor. But I heard some different commentary around the labor challenges, you know, call it the trouble in new primary care doctors coming out of college, less in the medical profession, less people coming into certain specific fields. Uh, physical therapy, I heard, uh, challenge to get PTs. I heard about the challenge of, you know, growing leadership in retail organizations, this, this decade long run in tech jobs, really making it challenging to hire great talent. And I think retailers and, and adjacent industries, not just retail are starting to feel it and um, really looking for innovative ways to solve that. 
I think the interesting takeaway here is it's not the storyline we've been hearing for so many years that everybody is going to drive Uber instead of wanting to work an hourly retail shift, which is still still a thing, right? But it's more systemic of a problem, which you just brought out. It's leadership, it's skilled jobs. And I think I would add one more piece here that the pay for warehouses, warehousing jobs, uh, I just read a stat, is anywhere from 25 to 45% higher for the same skill level than similar retail forward-facing jobs. So if you can apply for a job in a, a warehouse or an industrial setting and make 25 to 45% more with the same skill set, that's tough competition. And I'm not sure how we, we come around that. I think clearly the answer to that, that people are saying is automation, robotics. We'll see. I don't know if that is the answer, but that is what you're hearing at that level. But on, on the skilled labor, maybe one day you and I are replaced by robots. I don't know. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think we're far away from certain skilled labors being replaced by automation and robots. And we need people in school trying to go into these professions. And hopefully the cost of college will come down and make that uh, a little bit easier. I think that's a big piece of it too, right? The cost of don't hold your breath. Increases. Yeah, exactly. So true. So labor, we don't really have any answers, sounds like, but that's something that a lot of retailers and a lot of companies are still struggling with at all levels of the, the skill spectrum. Correct. That was probably outside of the volatile capital markets, that was the most, the, that was the biggest new challenge that I heard at the show. Uh, most of the other stuff really correlated to the positive. That was one of the challenges that I really, you know, people were struggling with. So we're getting all the negatives out of the way first. So let's move <laughs> on to number two. And then I promise everybody listening, it is all positive, three, four, and five onward. Okay. So number two is that just the overall consensus on capital markets. There is a bit of positivity here. And of course, this is what all of my meetings were centered around because my goal and uh, my job is to meet with owners and REITs and everybody in the, the ownership side of the business. So all of our conversations at the booth were, we want to buy, which is positive, right? There are buyers. Everyone wants to buy. They want to put money out and they believe in retail. The problem is the disparity between cap rates, interest rates, and the constraints in the capital market. So no huge surprise here, but I do think that people are starting to feel the, the covenants getting tighter from lending um, institutions due to the recent bank failures, the interest rates continuing to rise, the, the cap rates not keeping up. So every conversation I had was, how do we find value add retail over a seven cap? And, and that's a really, really tough thing right now because the, the centers are stabilized, as you know, right? Vacancies at a historic low. How do you find value when the market from a retail landlord perspective is so tight because the tenants are doing so well? So how do we find opportunities that are financeable because they have upside or they're being offered at a higher cap rate when there's very, very little low um, amounts of vacancy in the market? You know, one of the things I like about 
markets like this is that it comes back to the fundamentals of real estate. It's a lot less financial engineering and deals right now. And it's about how do I add value to the asset, right? Just that first premise that the investors talk to you about, right, is how do I find value add over a seven cap? The first thing they're focused on is the capital market, the valuation, and it's not about, right? That's different than saying, okay, there are very few investors came to you, or maybe, I don't know, maybe they did. But what you said was an interesting point because to me, if you're really on the value add side at the real estate level, not at the financial capital markets level, the conversation maybe is, I want to find deals that have less than 10 years of lease term and market rents under, you know, uh, or rents that are under 20% under market. So then that's about the fundamental real estate level, right? That's not about the capital markets. So I still think that investors have this, you know, tail of the last 10 years where money was super cheap and the people who were going to win are the people who add the value at the real estate level more than those who get the cheapest debt deal and, you know, create some financial engineering. All of that still matters. All of that still matters. But it's just a, th that comment that you made, you know, resonated with me because, you know, they're talking about value add deals. Okay. Well, you mean value add on the capital market side. We're not, you know, they're trying to get the spread between cap rates and what they can borrow at. That's what they're looking for in that positive leverage scenario. What I didn't hear was the value add at the real estate level. I think either. And when you can't look at the assets from just a financial engineering perspective anymore, very rarely do they pencil in a, a positive leverage accretive situation now, then you're forced to look at it from the real estate perspective, which is not bad, but that's very challenging to find right now too, because rents have been rising, the vacancy is very low. It's um, it's just competitive to find opportunities right now because there are a lot of people trying to buy, which is positive. That's the great news, right? Everybody is very, very bullish on retail, but how do we find the, the assets with the real estate fundamentals that you can still juice and still work the properties more? And I think that's where everyone's focus is, which over time will make the assets even stronger, right? As, as landlords like yourself continue to turn tenants over, they continue to, to work the properties, but finding them from an acquisition standpoint is especially difficult right now. I don't, I don't disagree. I think the way I would put it is, I think the opportunities are out there. They just might be more complicated to add the value. Sometimes it's about densifying the asset, looking at it completely differently. Sometimes it's about new government approvals. But I believe that there's opportunities out there. It's just less about how big is the spread between the cap rate and the interest rate. Correct. Very different mindset. But the good takeaway is everyone is in the market trying to make deals work. So they're there will be opportunity out there. You just got to dig for it was the takeaway. Correct. All right, let's move on to number three. 
Now, this is one based on your conversations with retailers, which I had less of, so I'm excited to hear what you, you have to say on this, that the big retailers, sort of our mainstream brands, if you will, are continuing to innovate. So why don't you kick us off by sharing a few examples of what you've been hearing? Yeah, I, I, I think this is, to me, pretty remarkable. For years, we have heard about all these new brands opening stores, creating uh, creating uh, e-commerce websites, you know, going direct to consumer and all these new things. <clears throat> I was excited to hear about the really big push from legacy mature retailers taking the next step in their evolution of their businesses, which is much more challenging because they're trying to move a battleship versus, you know, coming out of the gates with a new concept and just letting the fur fly. So, you know, if you, you know, if you haven't read, but it's been a, a lot of headline news, Dick Sporting Goods has this house of sports concept. They have public lands. They are growing these exponentially and they haven't taken their foot off the brake on the, the traditional Dick Sporting Goods concept. So, uh, that was really interesting to talk to them about, about, you know, such a legacy, mature retailer uh, growing at the pace that they want to grow. Right. We're, we're not thinking about these mature retailers as growth companies uh, like a Warby Parker, but it was exciting to hear them, you know, talk about growing in the manner in which they were. Well, one um, thing I want to jump in real quick before we move on from Dick's, that's an important distinction. They're not changing that the characteristics of their current stores, it sounds like, right, they're adding a new line that's experiential, that's different. So they're growing by addition, not through sort of upending the current brand. For sure. Right. right. So that's different than we're seeing from some other retailers that are changing prototypes, maybe going smaller, maybe moving locations. Dix is saying, we love who we are and we think we can also add XYZ to create more consumer loyalty or expand our brand image. For sure, we're we're under construction on a Dick Sporting Goods in Ithaca, New York. It's a what many would consider a traditional Dick Sporting Goods store. However, it will be the newest version of their traditional store. It's a fifty thousand footer. They just had one open in South Bend, Indiana. This will be the second, so we're getting the newest decor package and all that stuff. But it's a tradi okay. It's not a house of sports. It's not a public lands. It's a traditional Dick Sporting Goods. Love it. I know Macy's has a good bit of innovation going on. I mean, market by Macy's is growing. They have a huge appetite, open to buy. And uh, this is just an interesting one. Like this is one of the most historic retailers in America that most would think they're in every market in the country that they need to be in. And it's really about how do we increase the new same store sales at those locations. How do we get the best product? But here Macy's is with a new concept. Um, they had done a bunch of backstages. Now they're often really focused on this more market by Macy's. Uh, that's going to be about a 40,000 footer. Uh, it's going to be probably in power centers that are, have a little bit of distance from the 
department store Macy's, you know, but it's a Macy's shopper lives in that community. Maybe the department store is not as convenient to get to. Um, they're, they're one of the largest e-commerce websites in America from a sales perspective. So they have so much data about their consumer and what they buy that I think them leveraging that to, to focus on site selection is going to be really interesting. They have so much data as it relates to their consumer. So how does the, the market by Macy's compare to Macy's Backstage? Is it a different product mix? I know Backstage is meant to be more uh, discount, right? Yeah, and so Backstage is an off-price right. concept. This is a full-line department store, smaller version smaller. in the community. Got it. So very different product offerings, theoretically. Correct. And shopping experience. Good for them. That's exciting yeah. to see the, the smaller format. Now, are they closing that you've seen their their main on-mall anchor locations, or this is additive as well? It's additive. We'll get to the number five soon. Okay, so. that sounds good. Do you want to touch on Best Buy before we move on? Yeah, you know, Best Buy, Best Buy, who I think over the years has done such a remarkable job as a retailer because they've created this, you know, they were by headline news, so suspect to Amazon, and they've just won time and time again, um, whether it's with the Geek Squad, whether it's with uh, the store and store, whether it's adding uh, appliances into the store. You know, I think, I think with Sears gone and with, um, you know, the product levels at other retailers, there's a huge opportunity for the appliance market in retail. Uh, Best Buy is poised to really, they've already been kicking it up. Best Buy is poised to really get a lot of that market share, that physical retail, uh, I don't think picked up in the manner in which it could be. Uh, but they're opening outlet stores, right? They have some stores, so they're opening outlet stores to clear merchandise. Um, which I think is going to be a really big success because at that price point, uh, people are looking for deals, right? What electronics is like such a deal oriented business, right? People are constantly looking for a deal given, you know, the $5,000 TV comes out and people are like, Ooh, should I do that? Or in six months, will it be $2,500? Right? right. So I think the outlet store is going to be a really successful move for them. And then they have these new experience stores that I think are going to be, I don't know, 150,000 feet. They're going to be multi-level. They're gonna, they're only going to do a few of them, but they're going to be this crazy experience, electronics experience that I don't think we've seen before. So uh, it was just so refreshing to hear these mature legacy retailers be in such a strong position to innovate and continue to grow. Uh you know, it was really remarkable to hear. I think Best Buy does a really great job connecting to the consumer for some products that maybe there needs to be installation or there needs to be support. Their total tech program, I think they're calling it, which kind of goes beyond even what Geek Squad was, um, is adding that service element, which Amazon does not do well or hasn't figured out how to do well in my my opinion. So I think that's kind of ingraining the customer into the brand even further, which is very smart in the appliance and electronics space. For sure. Yeah, love to see it. All right, let's move on to number four. Your favorite chain may look 
different. So this ties back to something we've been talking about for the last two years, really, which is the absurd level of construction costs and the difficulty to build ground up. So that is unfortunately still the case, although the pace of increase is subsiding, uh, we are certainly still seeing extreme inflated construction costs. So if you can't build, what do you do? You backfill. So how are you seeing retailers adapt to the current climate and change their prototypes? So for many retailers that are chains, having a consistent floor plan throughout is super efficient. It enables them to order product in the, you know, creates efficiencies on the supply chain logistics, you name it, having like a consistent planogram, right? So that the, whatever your favorite store is, looks the same everywhere is they're able to execute on in today's construction cost environment and the need for physical retail i think you're finally and we've been talking about it for a while going to start to see potential deviations from that to access great real estate and because the costs potentially from a construction perspective are prohibitive i'll give an example you have a bed bath box available right now and bed bath let's just say the bathrooms were in the front but your store prototype has the bathrooms in the back well that could be it could be upwards of a hundred grand to move those bathrooms in the back right on a forty thousand foot store you know things like that start to add up on cost obviously if we're constantly you know we have to take this existing box and just retrofit it to make it exactly how my normal planogram works i'm finally starting to say or to see retailers go and work with their internal store planning and construction teams and go all right let's just leave the bathrooms there that'll right. save 100 grand and right. the retailers are either going to pay that out of pocket or potentially in more rent and while that seems simple to do, I would tell you that's a big step forward because it was hard for retailers to do that because of the efficiencies they gain from moving those bathrooms in the back. And, and the bathrooms are just an example. There's a lot of different things in the store that people can do to value engineer and cut the costs. And we're starting to see that at scale. And I think that's going to help more retailers open. That's going to help uh, lower the capex spend by both parties and uh i think it's going to lead to more deals it sounds so simple doesn't it just leave the bathrooms there well let's continue with the example you gave but when you really break that down if the bathrooms are in a different place then the whole store layout has to change to accommodate that like it's Correct. actually a pretty big shift for the retailer sounds simple to us listening when we're not in it day to day but that's a big that's a big deal Correct. Very interesting. And are you seeing this more because the landlords are pushing back on the TI or tenants are unwilling to absorb it? And it's kind of the stalemate that both parties are saying, listen, we're we're maxed out here on TI dollars. We're maxed out on rent. So instead of just fighting back and forth for who's going to pay more, we need to come together and figure out how to make it cost less. Are we at that inflection point? Yeah, I, I think the way I think about it is said simply yes to your question. I, the way I think about it is the overall cost 
for the landlord to install a tenant and the overall cost for a retailer to open a store. And both of those have risen. And I think landlords and retailers have found working on every creative way to lower those costs. And we're at a point now where I think we've exhausted a lot of those things. The landlords have the cost to install a tenant and the retailers have the cost to open their store that changing the store a bit is the thing that adds the biggest bang for the buck right now. Makes sense. Yes. All right, let's move on to number five. This is, of course, extremely positive. We've got to end the show on a high note, but also very true. It is retailers are open for business. Seems basic, but this is an overall sentiment of retail industry, strength of tenants, and just kind of where we are right now. Retailers are open for business, and they are trying very hard to expand, and their stores are doing very well. So I know you have a few examples we want to jump into Let's start with something we touched on in our last episode, because I'd love an update on what you heard from ICSE on the, the buzz around the Bed Bath & Beyond boxes that are going to auction. Everyone is fighting over. So what is the latest that you heard on Bed Bath & Beyond and any of that space that might become available? I, I think so. This was probably the biggest topic of conversation was the Bed Bath & Beyond at least for me that I had was the Bed Bath and Beyond uh, bankruptcy auction and those leases going to auction. I think right now Bed Bath is still in the part of the bankruptcy where they can try to sell the company. And so I think that ends in the next couple of weeks. And once that ends, uh, if there are no suitors for the entire business, then the leases will go to auction. And I can tell you there's a lack of box space in America and retailers are salivating. I think there's re there's already LOIs across the country for those spaces. And I say for those spaces, for many of the spaces. Mm -hmm. So some will go back to the landlord, but I think there will be an extraordinary amount of retailers who show up to bankruptcy court to buy some of those leases at auction. And historically, I think that, you know, what really drove that process was, is there a spread between what that lease rate is versus market rent? And, and that'll still play a factor. But what I, I kept hearing was, this is about access to great real estate. You know, tr traditionally Bed Bath & Beyond had great real estate. They have pretty strong leases generally from a tenant perspective. And this is less about what is the spread between the lease rate and the market rate and how do I access great real estate uh, today? And I think that is really interesting. I can tell you from our own portfolio, we have two Bed Bath boxes both have multiple letters of intent on those boxes. So um, there's a fight for this. What kind of uses are bidding on the spaces? I think, you know, I heard at the, so the answer is in my portfolio, it's off price 
it's uh, apparel, it is furniture. Uh, I've heard in I've heard those two categories. I've heard grocery. Um, I've heard the uh, the closeout retailers. I there I think the list is going to be robust. Um, this is a retailer that had a lot of interesting real estate, right? They, they were in the suburbs and power centers. They're in urban areas. They're right. They, they have some iconic New York yeah. city real estate, right? Sure. So I, I think this is going to be really unique bankruptcy auction. It's funny. Whoever thought we would be so excited about a retailer bankruptcy, but that feels like the, the buzz around it, right? Everyone's like, For sure. Oh, see what happens at that location. This is great. I wish it would hurry up. What's the, what's this one going to be? For sure. Win. So uh, you don't often think bankruptcy and excitement, but that is exactly the case right now. Love it. For sure. There's a few other categories that we noted were really, really in focus from an ex- expansion standpoint. I'm sure you have thoughts on these as well. It was the healthy, fast food, fast casual, and then specialty donuts or specialty sweets seems a lot of conversation around donuts, but I'm sure it's more expensive than that. So food and beverage in the, the suburban centers getting a lot more interesting from a concept perspective. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so DLC just put out a white paper. So if you haven't downloaded it, download it, Carly. It's called A Breath of Open Air. Okay. And uh, the, the premise is about, you know, why open air retail is, you know, one of the strongest and maybe one of the less appreciated real estate categories of all, all commercial real estate. One of the things we are seeing is this suburban surge is still continuing to happen. You know, the, a lot of the retail expansion is about the suburbs. Um, and you know the urban environment is a challenge. I was on a retail panel, and they had me, and they had uh, someone who was who leases space uh, in the urban environment. And it was really the dichotomy of how challenging the urban environment is versus how robust the suburban environment is. And I think food is a good segue to that, right? Which is you mentioned you know, food and beverage category. Well, if people are working from home more than they were, if people move to the suburbs, these suburban populations have more both full-time population and daytime population. And, you know, food and beverage usually follows that. I'm excited for some new concepts. I think it's time for innovative change. So can't wait to see a, a sweet greens and similar concepts coming to a neighborhood near me for sure the last category that i was paying close attention to that i'd love for you to touch on is entertainment so felt like for years we were talking about experiential retail then that gave way to covid and now we're back talking about experiential retail so having gone to many retail centers obviously in my day-to-day life i am always amazed by the new concepts that i see popping up like indoor go-karting seems to be everywhere all of a sudden. So what are your thoughts on the entertainment side, maybe virtual reality? There's just endless ideas here and how that is going to evolve over the next year. So I think, you know, in the 
between 2010 and 2020, we, we used to hear this comment that people wanted in the tech world, a new business would come on and they would claim, we're the Uber of X. In the retail space right now, what I'm seeing is everyone wants to be the top golf of X. Right. That is such a great comparison. You're and exactly right. So yep. Top Golf has had such a big success. And then mm -hmm. with the explosion of golf post COVID, they have, you know, rode this wave. They're doing great. Um, and you know, we just saw this new baseball concept come out that wants to be the top golf of baseball. And what the biggest one where there was multiple operators at the show is um, people pickle are trying ball. to be the pickleball of top of the top golf of pickleball. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't believe how many pickleball operators there are out there. Um, and they're claiming it's not a fad given the, the rapid participation and how many people are growing into pickleball. It is huge. And Amazing. some of these pickleball chains that are up and running are uh, really successful and, and they're limited. And I'm talking about, think of a pickleball concept that looks like a top golf, but is pickleball. I'm not talking about a restaurant that might add two pickleball courts. There might be a lot of those. There's very few pickleball concepts out there open today that look like a top golf. Right. That that's the, the main focus. If not the pick the well, top golf, you know, does significant business in the food and beverage right. part of their business. And so, and, and that is the plan and what these pickleball operators do. But I think if the pickleball operators of the world have their way, there's going to be a lot of pickleball concepts out there that look a lot like top golfs. So obviously to the go to market for that is challenge, right? Think about the real estate component. Top golf took a while to get up and running. They take up a ton of real estate. It's typically a development deal um, and it takes years to get them going and they have to find a creative way to finance it. And Topgolf had some really clever ways to finance their growth. Uh, and now they're in such a good position. You know, I don't know when we're sitting here and talking about a pickleball concept that has a hundred plus locations and looks like Topgolf, but I can tell you that was hot on the ICSC floor. Amazing. Cannot wait to get an update on that this time next year. Let's see how many people are still playing pickleball, how they make these profitable and how they find the space and the square footage. I saw some pictures of pickleball companies opening in the, the main floor area of malls, not an anchor space. It's just in the middle of the mall, which is very strange to me, but it's vacant space. It's empty space, underutilized space. So, they're going to go wherever they can fit, but where they end up and how they perform financially will be really interesting to watch. Well, let's talk about it from a capital markets perspective. I know Essential Properties Trust, I believe, bought four Pickleball, uh, their net lease uh, company. They bought four Pickleball uh, mm -hmm. concepts. Uh, Top Golf has a Top Golf traded lately. I haven't seen one. They are. You know, Few and, and far between. And, and, they, and they usually trade at pretty compelling cap rates from a seller perspective. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. I don't know that any pickleball operators have the the balance sheet of, you know, Topgolf and, you know, now they're owned by Callaway. But uh, they want to get there. And 
so the theme that I would say is everyone wants to be the top golf of. Right. And that's going to come down to who is backing them financially. Right. And if you can get a strong guarantor, then landlords are going to be more open to taking a risk on the concept because there's something behind it. So right. what private equity company swoops in and finances rapid pickleball expansion, that's really, in my opinion, going to be the determining factor on who wins the pickleball race or whatever sport we're talking about. The pickleball race. Pickleball race. TVD. It's going to be fun. Have you played? I've played once, yes. Okay. You? It's, yeah, a few times. Yep. Restrike my basketball court in the backyard to add pickleball. No way. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's not hard to do. So, wow. good time. All right. We covered a lot to everyone listening. Those were our top five takeaways from ICSC Las Vegas 2023. If you have questions, comments, reach out to Chris or I. We love talking about retail real estate. And Chris, thank you so much. Great to see you as always. You too. And until next month, that was What's in Store. I'm Carly Iacono, joined by my co-host Chris Russa, and we can't wait to see you again very soon. Take care, everyone. Bye. Oh,